0: This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript the Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS in-depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jammer link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development And that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to episode 169 of the JavaScript Jabber. Today on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. And Amy Knight.
2: Hello.
1: And I'm Joey, your host, And we have a special guest on the show with us today, and that is Zach Kesson. Hi, guys. And Zach is here to talk to us about property-based testing. So before we get into that, Zach, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are and your background? Sure.
3: I've been in this business, the web, for over 20 years now. I'm also the host of the Mostly Erlang podcast, so go listen to that. And I've written a couple books for O'Reilly, and I've been around... And I've done I've just sort of done a lot of everything over the years. Um, I'm also starting a startup called Parrot, which
2: uh, is doing some cool stuff. I think awesome. we actually talked to you a while ago about functional yes. programming, right?
0: Yes, and I've you, been on
2: the show before. You were living in Israel at that time.
0: I am currently
3: so it's a little complicated. I, I live in Israel, but I'm currently spending a chunk of time in London for work. So I'm currently sitting in an apartment. In the East End of London, uh, in the middle of Petticoat Lane Market, and if you, and if I wait around a couple hours, the Jack the Ripper tour will walk by.
2: Really? Yes. So you can pass put like a sweet bowler hat on and jump out and scare them or something.
3: So, you need a cape. You need a cape, right? You need a cape. Yeah. Well, you know, it's right by the spot where he, he Jack left the anti-Semitic, graf- you know, blame it on the Jews graffiti. So I've always been tempted to put on my bright white yarmulke and sort of go through, go, sorry guys, it's all our fault, we didn't mean to, but there you go, but oh. I wouldn't do that to one of the tour guides, who are just, you know, kind of,
1: kind of, kind
3: of, but I, I've been tempted.
1: Or you could uh, dress up as a woman of the night, put some ketchup bowl over you, and lay out there on the ground. Yeah, well,
3: on the <laughs> other hand, I do have a daughter who's an effects, who does special effects makeups. Oh,
1: how awesome would that be? Yeah. So, just tell us about this uh, Mostly Airline podcast podcast.
3: So yeah, I've been doing Erlang for a couple of years. I was doing JavaScript and PHP about four or five years ago, and wanted to find something a little more powerful, a little better. And I started looking at other languages. I took a look at Haskell. And it broke my brain. I looked at Scala. Uh, Closure wasn't really a big thing yet. And I st- stumbled upon Erlang, and it's like, holy cow, this is the right way to do scale. Turns out those guys figured out the telecom guys solved the problems we're solving now twenty years earlier. <laughs> When they heard about the C10K in in 2003 or whatever, they scratched their heads and went, what, we did that years ago. So I wrote a book for O'Reilly on building web applications with Erlang, and I started to get involved in the Erlang community more and more. And I'm like, we should have a podcast. So I called Chuck up, and uh, he gave me some good advice, and we've been doing it for a couple of years now. The reason we call it mostly Erlang is we occasionally talk about other things. We've had episodes on F-Sharp and a couple of them on Haskell and Idris and Elm and certainly plenty on Elixir if you're an Elixir fan. So just did one on Lisp-flavored Erlang, uh, which is a Lisp that runs in the Erlang ecosystem. So yeah, it's been a fun podcast. And we typically have a panel of four people who are in four different countries and quite possibly four different time zones. Wow. Yeah, I've gotten used to the invite emails just putting time zones in explicitly. It makes life easier. Um,
1: so let's get into our topic, property-based testing. I think that it's probably a good idea to just start off with just an introduction as to okay. what property-based testing is, that benefits, drawbacks of that, etc. Okay, so
3: property-based testing, also known as quick, check, was the original version was called quick check, and I sort of use the two terms interchangeably, was invented in, in the Haskell space by John Hughes, who was at the time a professor, she still is, at Chalmers University in Gothenburg, Sweden. He then went on to found a company called Quivet. Co-founded it, uh, which ported QuickCheck to Erlang, part because they had a bunch of customers who wanted it, and uh, it, versions of it have since been ported to, popped up in many languages, including JavaScript. So the idea is, when you do a unit test, let's say you're testing, let's just say something really super, uh, really simple, like conjoint. <coughs> Uh, pending two lists, right? Lists, you have two, you know. So you, you come up with a couple of test case examples. You know, you say, well, we'll, we'll take a list with two elements and the empty list, and we'll pen them together, or a list with two elements and a list with three elements, and you know, you make sure it all work. Your, your tests work, and then you say, okay, I'm done. The problem is that could only th- test the things you think of. So the idea of property based testing is, what if we let the computer which is good at boring repetitive stuff, come up with 100 or 1,000 or 100,000, depending on how much time you feel like giving it, random test cases, and then we'll write some code to verify that they worked. With me so far? Yep. Yes. So the idea of this is it will come up with the weird failing test case that you will never think of. A good example of this was I was working in, in Erlang. There's a web framework for Erlang called Chicago Boss, and it has a, an interface to MySQL. So I wrote a test for it, and this is sort of a very simple property-based test. And said, okay, generate a random string, save it to the database, read it back, and make sure you get the same string back, right? That's what you'd want in a, in a database driver.
4: So as you're explaining this, I think for people who are unfamiliar, it might be helpful to explain why property-based testing is usually synonymous with uh, functional programming. That just kind of like helped me to grasp the concept better.
3: It mostly is synonymous with functional programming, I think, because it was invented by people who work in the functional in Haskell, and then the first two versions were Haskell and Erlang. I don't think there's anything particularly functional programming specific about it, although it tends to work well if you have immutable variables. On the other hand, I've also done, seen people do property-based testing, where you've basically had it driving Selenium to test a web application, you can do that too. Mostly I think it's just an artifact of the fact the people who invented it were, were, were Haskell and Erlang developers or researchers. Does that make sense?
4: That does. I was kind of thinking about some of the talks that I was watching about it because this was a concept that I wasn't terribly familiar with prior to us talking about it today. Just with functional programming, you have just these functions that, you know, do one thing, you put something in, you expect something out. So sometimes with like object oriented programming, maybe you don't want side effects, but sometimes there are. So just as I was listening to them, it, uh, it helped me to understand kind of the thought process going into this and how you make assertions, not necessarily about what's what you expect out, but like the properties of what you expect to come out.
3: Right. I mean, you could certainly make an assertion like, you know, if you're using Selenium to run a web, you know, make an assertion like this field exists and is visible on the page or this div contains text that is an integer between 1 and 12. You know, if you had like a time of day thing, right? So the hours field, you might say this contains an integer that is between 1 and 12 or 0 and 23, depending on if you're using 24 hour time or not. So you could certainly do that. And even in Erlang, you have the ability to test stateful systems that have side effects by firing events at them and doing a sequence of function calls. So this is what you see in functional world a lot, but JS Verify is a platform for um, a property-based test package for JavaScript that's quite good. And on the day we are recording this, I think I saw about eight GitHub, I think I saw two or three pull requests merged on it today on GitHub so it's
2: being very actively worked on by not actually including me can i ask a question that's kind of related to this you were sure. you were talking uh, before amy asked her question about this test you wrote to verify that your database driver saved stuff correctly and i'm assuming the the end of the story is and you found a bug in it right yes so how do you handle tests like that, that that touch, I mean, if you're just manipulating an array in memory or something, you can run 10,000 test cases. If you're reading and writing to and from a database, it, it seems like there are resource constraints, there are dependencies on outside state. You talked about that a little bit, but how do you, it, it seems like this is a really great idea for pure functions. And then when it hits the real messy world where you can't have all your data in memory, and all your output to be writing to memory. How, how do you do that? Well,
3: so what I did in this case, and this was mainly a test that did not end up getting
2: checked into,
3: um, put into, you know, my C, the CI build. But basically I treated it as an integration test and said, okay, write a new record to the database. There was an, OR, an ORM type thing uh, going on, and read it back and generate, you know, a bunch of random string. So what it does is it, it will keep doing that, and eventually it'll find one that breaks, right? Now, the problem you're thinking is, well, chances are what breaks is going to have a lot of noise in it, right? It's not going to be a three-character three, a three character string. It'll probably be like a 30-character string. So what most good property-based test frameworks do is they actually have a thing called shrinking, where they'll take that 30-character string and just do basically a depth-first search on it and start automatically removing elements. So all of the things that are not relevant to the bug get pulled out before they show it, it shows it to you. So you see the simplest possible case, but... In terms of state, yeah, sometimes that is hard, where you have to, if you have a stateful system, testing of stateful systems is a tricky thing. I mean, in that case, it was a test system set up, so I could just dump the database and not really worry about it. But in other cases, yeah, you have to um, have a cleanup code or something. But, you know, I mean, that's a general problem of testing stateful systems.
1: Sure. Um, It
2: it just seems like testing pure functions is not the hardest problem. And so a system that is a lot better at testing pure functions is like helping people that are already in a great position, not helping people with their real world pain.
3: But I mean, yeah, this is true. That being said, a lot of people have been using quick check for tests. You know, if all you could test was pure functions, it wouldn't be very, it would not be very interesting. So basically you test... A non-pure function. If you have a an event-based system like
2: a web application, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a poor podcaster. We should talk about what pure functions are first before oh, we get too point. far into this. I didn't so sorry, a, I didn't define that.
3: A pure function is something like a function that takes that has no external dependencies of any sort. So, you know, if you have a function that say takes a list of number I mean, a list and sorts it, that would be a pure function, right? You get a list in, you get a list out. And if you put the same list in a hundred times, you'll always get the same list out. On the other hand, an impure function is one that either reads or writes to the global state of the world. So it could be something like manipulating the DOM or even something as simple as you know checking the time of day. You know, it's now you know, it is now 528 p.m. where I where I do this, but of course if we run this test. If we had a test that depended on it being 528 p.m., then, you know, that's not a good test. So,
2: Or you'd have to at least think about that a little harder. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So,
3: And, like, if you go into Haskell, the type system will actually differentiate between pure and impure functions. For the rest of us, we sort of have to just sort of wing it by hand. But, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at, say, manipulating the DOM, you know, if you have different things manipulating the DOM, and you don't really know which order they happen in, then you know, you don't know what the end result is going to be. So in terms of how do you test something that's stateful, basically what you want to do is create a sequence of events and then execute that sequence of events and, you know, have a model for what should happen. And then, you know, you run it and then you make a bunch of assertions and you verify that your model runs that. Now, one way you could do it is you could do a comparison thing. For example, you could take, if you're doing something in the browser with Selenium, you could take or even not with Selenium, with just, you know, something like... Ja- uh, what is the JavaScript test framework of choice in the browser these days? Mocha, Jasmine?
2: Oh, man. Like everything else, I don't know that there's a super solid winner. I think Mocha or Jasmine are, are both fairly yeah. popular. Okay, yeah, so, yeah,
3: Mocha or Jasmine. So if you had a bunch of tests that you were running through Jasmine or Mocha, it doesn't matter. You, know, you might want to verify that they work the same on all browsers, right? So you could then launch it in Internet, explore, use Selenium to just drive this... Launch one copy of the Internet Explorer, every developer's favorite web browser, right? Not, and one copy in Firefox and one copy in Chrome, and, and see that the results are the same um, for some definition of the same. Or you could do something like say, okay, I'm. Let's say you had a to-do list application. You could have a couple of possible operations you could perform on it. You can add an item, you could mark it done, you can delete an item, and you know. Or l- l- let's just sort of say you had those three. So you can have a model for, okay, if I add four items, then delete one of them, then add two more, and then and so on, then you can say, all right, at the end of it, I expect to have this, you know, to be in this state. Let's run it and see. And then, and then let's just generate a hundred sequences and see what happens. I, I will warn you that one general piece of advice, at least uh, I haven't tried in JavaScript, but it's probably true, is when you're doing shrinking, which I mentioned earlier, if you're doing stateful stuff, you may want to shrink set it up such that you can shrink down to a weight, because sometimes that confuses things where, you know, you do four operations, but only the first and the fourth are relevant, but the other two just take up some time
2: that lets something happen.
3: So, bugs using this approach. One of the best ones that I know of, um, does anybody drive a Volvo?
2: I have in the past. Okay. Not right now, though.
3: So, Volvo hired Quivic, John Hughes's company, to write quick check tests to, or t- properties, to test the components that go into their cars, because cars contain a lot of of computers. And let's face it, a car these days is just a computer with a motor and wheels. Or a network of computers, right? And you'd like to hope that the software that goes into your car works better than the software that does a lot of other things. I don't know if it is, but I'd like to hope it is. So there's a... Agreed. There's a bus that connects all the computers in your car, and there's a priority level on the bus, so you can have things, some things are priority, which is good, because you want the thing that's running your radio to have a lower priority than the thing that's running say your brakes. So they basically set up a system where they would send events in and expect that they'd come out in the correct order as determined by priority. The problem was there was two versions of this standard. One had like a smaller number of priority levels and other one had a, a much bigger number. And the way you differentiated was those, you set a bit. You set the high order bit. So something was not checking that bit right and just considering it as part of the integer. So something that should have had a very high priority came out having a very low priority. and they discovered this by basically generating a random sequence of com- you know, random sequences of commands and then firing them in and then just fight until they found one that did the wrong thing. And you, know, you just sort of say, okay, a 100 commands go in, you should get 100 commands coming out. Uh, they should always be in the correct order or however it works and then they found one that wasn't, and then they were able to reduce it down to just a few things. Um, another example was um, a friend of mine, Heinz, runs a, a virtualization thing uh, package called Project FIFO, which is based on Solaris, and he found a very weird bug, which I, I'm not going to describe because I don't really remember how it worked, where if you instantiate, like, created a new virtual machine, instantiate it, killed it, and did something else, all within a certain amount of time, it did something really weak, like it should never have done. It's one of those bugs you probably would never find, Manually, because it's just it requires just this weird sequence of events. So that is sort of the um, examples of some things that have been found. And of course, my um, my database driver bug is another good example.
2: So it sounds like the broad theme of of stuff that QuickCheck or property based testing can help you with is if you're used to thinking of boundary cases when you're testing things, you would probably write your properties in a way that would test the boundary cases. But it'll also do. Weird stuff that
1: you don't anticipate, basically. Right.
3: There's always more boundary cases than you thought of.
1: It might be a good idea for us to quickly explain boundary cases.
3: So a good boundary ca- Okay, so a boundary case... Well, I mean, here's a good example in that MySQL bug. So the bug in question was, if you sent the string backslash, backslash space into the database, the backslashes got deleted. So that's, it's, you just have this case where you have a special... For some reason, you have a special value where this one value or this one substring doesn't behave like all the others. Or another case might be where you have, if things are added and removed from a list very quickly, maybe they come in in the wrong order. Or things like that. We just have these weird cases where, especially with concurrency, where events don't happen in the way you expect.
2: Uh, um, another way to think about boundary cases might be you maybe have designed this function with some implied Range of, of properties like say you wrote a function that sorts integers and you wrote it in a way that it can only take in one hundred in- integers for some reason I don't know why you would do that
3: well, I don't, yeah I don't know why you that but
2: then yet. then you would feed in a function or you'd feed in one hundred and one integers and see what it does kind of so it's like places where you think the behavior might change if you pass a certain limit in or right. something like that
3: exactly or you know. Testing what would happen if you know the user enters bad input because users never do that. So th- those are sort of good examples, and um, you know and the idea is that you don't want to have to think of all these weird cases. So there, there's there are two other topics that you sort of say is, you know first of all how do you generate the data and the properties. The other is this whole concept of shrinking. I've sort of been wandering around. Why don't we start with uh, gener- generating the data? Yeah. Obviously, every package is going to be a little bit different. If you're working in JavaScript, there's a package called uh, JS Verify. So it has a nice DSL for how to generate the data. Basically, if you look at it, there are a couple ways. Basically, You basically give it a set of rules for how to generate it. And then you give it a function. And if that function evaluates to true, the test passes. And it, you can embed it in Mocha or Jasmine as appropriate. So that's sort of the, the short version. And basically, there, there are a bunch of functions that all compose. So you can say, OK, I want an integer, or I want an integer between 1 and 12, or I want a Boolean, or whatever. And then you can do things like say, I want a JSON with these fields. And then each field is a property, so it you know, has the same thing, so you, a field might be an integer, or an array of integers, or an array of, or you can have one of a choice. So if you had, you know, you could give it 12 possible user IDs or something. And just have it pick one at random from that list, or the, the, and there are weighted lists and other things. So the, there are all sorts of things. Basically, there are all sorts of um, generators. There's integers of various sizes. There's UTF-8 strings. There's natural numbers, which with or without a maximum size. And again, all of these compose where you can say, you know, it's a list of integers or a list of, you know, this is an integer or a real, or a string, and then you could say it's a list of that choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And then what you have to do is say, okay, now that I have this data, what do I do with it? How do I verify that the function that does what I think it's supposed to do? Right. Now, in some cases, there's sort of four general patterns. There are four easy patterns for doing this. So the first one is if you have an ex- another implementation that does roughly the same thing or the same thing, compare against that. So for example, let's say you're uh, generating JSONs instead of just using the one that's built into JavaScript. Well, you do that specifically? I don't know. But, or let's say you're generating some other data format, not JSONs, right? So chances are there's a version of that data format implemented in some other language, right? You might have an implementation in, let's just say, Python. That can validate true or false that this is a valid example of whatever format you're looking at. So then you generate your data, you convert it into that format, you pass it to the Python program, and that says yes, it's good. So that's one option. The other thing you can do is the sort of the identity test, where you can say, okay, if I re- encode this and then decode this, I should or read it, then write it out, then read it back, or something like that. I should always get back the same thing I put in. So, you know, I take some data, I encode it to XML, I decode it back into my program. I should get back the same data I put in, right? Um, there, there are a lot of types of examples, encoder, decoder, reader, writer. You know, fire it off
2: to the server, wait for it to come back, all right? So I have a question that is broad. Sure. It, it seems like there's been a recent trend in programming languages in general, but especially in JavaScript, of taking more ideas that have been popular for a long time in functional programming, like immutable data, pure functions. These are these are things that are more popular now in JavaScript and maybe a year ago, they almost, almost no kind of everyday JavaScript developer had heard of them or, or had a reason to care about them. And it seems like quick check or property-based testing is part of that same trend. Do you think there's a reason why these things are all of a sudden kind of springing up in JavaScript?
3: Um, I think it's because a lot of very smart people working in the... You know, both industry and in academia have been really thinking about this. And then, you have know, things like Clojure and Haskell and Erlang, which are sort of bringing it into the mainstream attention, and Scala and Elm and, lots, and you know, a long list of other things. So I think that's part of it. You know, I think the, you know, a problem with JavaScript is it tends to use a lot of mutable state. Now, it's certainly not unique. A lot of languages do this. And I think we're starting sure to realize that having lots of mutable state is like having lots of go-tos in a program, and it just ends up making the program harder to maintain um, and hard to figure out, you know, where did this state come from? And I've certainly had that problem in JavaScript where, you know, there's something, you know, callbacks happened in an order I was not expecting. Things like that. Where, Sure. Uh, you, you could, in theory, I haven't done it, you, use QuickCheck to mock out a back end where, you know, you could muck with the order in which things happen to see if there's some order that would break things. You know, if you have, you know, these four AJAX calls, going out and then you assume they will come back in this order but if they come back in that weird order the whole thing goes kablooey you know you want it, you'd like to know, know about and fix that and then you know have a repeatable test that would fix you know verify that it doesn't reoccur
2: so it kind of sounds like you're saying uh, some of the problems we solve in javascript are helped by things from functional programming
3: yeah i mean look it is always good to learn from what other people are doing i mean haskell the Haskell guys, and I'm not a Haskell programmer by any means, you know, very explicit, are very explicit about the fact that, that they're kind of doing the idea lab thing. They're a place where people are going to play with crazy ideas and you know, how far can we push a type system before, you know, so it'll do things and you end up with things like Idris, which is a cool topic for another day. Uh, we get a podcast on it mostly early. And you can go look.
2: So maybe another question is why... I mean, Java has been around for a long time. It's really popular and... My impression is they have not had the same functional programming kind of renaissance that JavaScript has had. Maybe that's because on the JVM you can just switch to Clojure or Scala or something, but it seems I, like I, Java's, or JavaScript is kind of unique in mainstream, non-explicitly functional programming languages in that it's kind of becoming the standard or, or the more accepted way to write it instead of becoming a different language. Does that make sense?
3: Right. Well, I, I think there are a couple reasons. That. I mean, the reason Java... Well, a reason, or, Java, or, I mean,
2: or C or C plus right? C right. C is not changing to be. I mean, the the default accepted way to write C is not going to change to be pure functions anytime soon. I feel like.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, C. I think with C, that would be very, very hard. I mean, you can do it, but it would be very difficult. I admittedly, it's been a very long time since I've written any amount of C. I think part of it is just simply. In JavaScript, you have some things like first-class functions that make it possible. I mean, doing functional stuff in Java is hard because you don't have a first-class function. And, you know, you can sort of fake it by doing weird things with anonymous objects and stuff. But Whereas JavaScript has these lovely first-class functions that they kind of stole from Scheme, which is a good thing. So I think that's a major part of it, and that functions you know, callbacks and functions for all that they occasionally get messy are a core competency of JavaScript programmers, whereas I think in some other languages, like Java, even though Java 8 now supports Lambdas, Lambda being a computer science term for an anonymous function, but for those of you who have not heard the term before, then, you know, most JavaScript programmers are used to dealing with closures and with things like anonymous functions, where, say, a Java programmer might not have that, you know, would not be used to that. So I think that's one way. And the other thing is Java has some other features that more or less make it good for, or at least sort of try to, for building large-scale systems, like a sort of kind of, if you know, a vaguely almost not quite decent type system.
2: So So it's almost like the total lack of anything besides functions in JavaScript makes people reach out for these functional principles as a way to solve complexity problems because there's not much support in the language. Is that where you're going with that?
3: Yeah. I mean, you have functions. They're good. In Java, you don't have functions. So you can't really do that. In C, you have functions, but you really can't pass them around in the same way you would with JavaScript.
1: So I came from a C-sharp world, Okay. background before I went into JavaScript heavily. And I don't think that this what we're seeing is necessarily unique to JavaScript only because I, I remember a time when functional programming became very popular in C Sharp and when immutable data became something that people were really talking about. And then we started seeing third-party projects that were based on these sorts of things and to enable these sorts of things. But I do think that what Zach is saying is somewhat true and that is like especially with these other languages, they're actually a lot uh, stricter. You know, JavaScript is extremely flexible, so it can move through do other th- paradigms easily or easier than something like C sharp. C sharp is very close to Java, right? So it can do these sorts of things easier where with C sharp it takes a long time for them to change how C sharp works and it's it's just more set in I don't know if set in stone is the right thing, but just less versatile where C JavaScript is pretty versatile, and JavaScript's just really n- new in comparison. Although JavaScript's actually older than C Sharp, we just didn't really program much with it until kind of more recently. Yeah, I mean the first
3: the, the, the first decade of JavaScript. I mean, I remember the first ever JavaScript application with application in quotes. I saw it was probably about 1996 or 1995 something like that. And it was on a bank's web page, and it was like a a loan calculator, a mortgage calculator, or a savings calculator. Say, so, you know, if I put in five hundred dollars into my bank account and at two percent interest, and you know, another put another five hundred dollars every month. After five years, how much money will I have? You know, that kind of
1: right.
3: thing. Which you know, it's a perfectly useful application, but it's not. It's not particularly big. Right. This, this, this is not, you know, this is not Gmail or you know the Google presentation software you know, the Google Docs uh, version of PowerPoint, whatever they call it, you know, I mean, which is just, you know, JavaScript and other languages, I think PHP falls into this too, We're really started to be very, sort of, doing very small little simple things, take a few values out of a database, shove them onto a page, you know, validate a form before you submit it, do some simple math, and then we've grown them to the point of beyond all sanity, I mean, if you look at JavaScript from the late '90s, and I'm around long—I've been around long enough that I, you know, do that versus JavaScript of, 20, you know, 2015. It's almost barely not, you know, it's really should not be the same language. I think this is part of the reason you're getting so many compiled of JavaScript languages like CoffeeScript and Elm and ClojureScript and all the others, of which there are more than you can shake a stick at these days.
1: Yeah, tons. Um, because you
3: know JavaScript as a language was not designed for this kind of thing and I give great kudos to anybody who can make it work uh, that being said I'd like to see you know if people can use property based testing to find those weird corner cases in their applications be they in the browser or in node I don't really care or in you know whatever other context or by the way everything I've said will apply to any of a dozen languages there are certainly fun Property-based test frameworks for most languages. Um, so you know, if, if this sounds interesting to you, you know, you can certainly do it in Erlang or JavaScript or Haskell, but you can also do it in um, F# or Java or Java or Scala or Closure and Elm. But including ClojureScript. build this stuff in into a base package. By the way, Objective C too. If you're an iOS dev, I haven't necessarily used all these. And I have not used many of them, in fact,
2: but they're there. So you, you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about that property-based test you wrote for your database driver that you used it as part of an integration test. Can right. you maybe talk a little bit more about how property-based testing fits in with other kinds of testing that you do? Do you do all your tests in property-based testing? Are there a certain subset of things that you use it and you still have kind of traditional unit and integration tests for other things?
3: Well, first of all, let me just draw a little just, you know, some axes of tests here. So, you know, we talked about unit tests and integration tests. And, you know, in terms of, I think if you want to see where property tests, you'd have to sort of draw a second line at a right angle and say on one hand you ha- side you have what we'll call example based tests, on the other hand, you have property based tests, where you can have a unit test that is a property and you can have an integration test. And it's just a question of how, what you're using it for. The difference is not whether it's, you know, a unit test or an integration test, they're both useful. It's more of, the idea of you're generating the inputs randomly or semi-randomly to find those corner cases. Okay. Um, So, you know, you might have something, if you were building um, a set of set operators, you know, you might want to do something like, say, you want to verify that the union operator is commutative, so you generate two sets, you union them, you know, A union B, and then B union A, and verify you get the same thing out do that a hundred times. That's pr- that, that would be, you know, the equivalent of a unit test, right? Where you're just going to generate a hundred tests or a thousand tests or whatever. On the other hand, you might also say, look, I'm going to generate not the inputs to a function, but a sequence of events that I'm going to fire against my system and then compare it to a model, which would be much more like an integration test. Again, you're using the same principles of we're generating our tests at random and then seeing what happens. See if we can find that weird corner case that we know must be there somewhere. And the way I recommend doing that basically is you start with a very simple model that only does like one or two things. And with unit tests, you know, you write a test, write some code, write another test, write some more code, etc. So with property-based tests, you write a property. You know, if, if it's going to an event, it properties you know maybe it has two events it can have, and then you add a third event, and then you add a fourth event. And at some point, you may actually end up with more than one property that's perfectly valid too. So it evolved, yeah and you just evolved the property over time. Generally, also you you can also most systems will let you um, have some way where if you find a failing case, you can save it as a uh, basically convert it to a unit a unit test for to prevent against regressions. Now, if you ran a sort of standard run of a hundred tests and it found it, I usually don't bother because chances are if I found it in the first hundred random tries, it'll find it in the next hundred too. So it's not worth saving. But sometimes you can say, okay, you know, normally it'll run a hundred property, a hundred instances of the property. So I'm just saying, okay, I'm going to set this thing up and, you know, as I leave for the day, so it'll run all, you know, it'll run a hundred thousand, you know, hundred thousand iterations and it'll, you know, take all night and, you know, find out if those really weird bug is in there somewhere and then come back in the morning, see the results. So those you want to save.
2: That's another uh, interesting theme in property-based testing that it it definitely adds an element of randomness, right? Like for me, test failures that are intermittent are one of the most frustrating parts of software development. So that's kind of a scary part of property-based testing, to be honest. Right, right, right. I mean... That like you now have added a bunch more things that can sometimes fail. Right. No, that's true.
3: I mean, the truth is there's sort of two categories of things that will fail in a property-based test. You have thing A, which is it'll fail if you say generate 100 test cases. You have type A, which, you know, if you do that 10 times, it'll fail 9 times. Sure. And those are usually really easy to – you know, the things you would probably have written a unit test for anyway. Sure. And then you have type B, where if you run 100,000 instances and you're lucky, you catch it. Those are the ones you probably never wrote a test – would have written a thing for anyway. So, those are the ones you want to, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, it's gonna take you, it may take you a while to find them. On the other hand, you probably never would have found them any other way. Sure. Anyway, if you have more questions about this, I have a book uh, doing this in Erlang called Erlang Quick Checkbook. Uh, even if you're not an Erlang person, I think it'll be pretty useful. It's currently under development. And you can buy it on my website, and I'll
1: put a link in there. Awesome. Well, it's time to uh, wrap this up. We're going to move on to the uh, pick section, so let's have Amy go first.
4: Okay, so my first one, uh, kind of going off of what we talked about last week, we were talking about ES7, and uh, at the end we got into the async await stuff, and so my first pick is going to be uh, just an article talking about that, Um, and I really like this person's blog post, so uh, I haven't been able to read this all the way through yet, but I'm going to guess that it's going to be really good. My second pick is November. I'm actually going to be speaking at this for the first time, so I'm very excited about that. but uh, Congratulations. Hooray. <laughs> I'm super excited. Um, but it's also an awesome conference. Nashville is incredible. I think that they are still looking for speakers, um, and as the name of the conference says, it's in November, so you have a while to think about it, but I would highly recommend attending, and they already have the uh, keynote speakers up. Uh, and douglas crawford is one of them so check that out and that's it for me
1: awesome jameson how about you
2: got a few picks my first pick is hipstersound.com it's just kind of background music that was recorded in cafes so if you're working from home or in an office but you want just kind of the random ambiance, I, I don't know it helps me concentrate some people hate it i like it
1: i thought it was going to be a recording that you made of yourself hipster noise
2: it's just me, like sorting through my exclusive rare record collection.
3: Yep. I am in no way, shape, or form a hipster.
2: So. <laughs> this is this is a deep cut from this rare bootleg album. <laughs> nope.
1: You you tying your shoes? No, it's
2: it's less annoying than that. Yeah, me like grooming T- tying, my waxed mustache or
1: something. Right. Tying your hush puppies. Should <laughs> yep. I
2: say? Uh, my next pick is a uh, talk by David Nolan, who's kind of like the grand vizier of closure script. He's really smart, and I love all of his talks. But this one is on Ohm Next, so the next version of his ClojureScript UI framework based on React. And it's really good if you're into React, but it's also really good to just see some of the really exciting ideas coming out of front-end JavaScript development. And then another pick is just a song I've really liked this last week. It's called Weight in Gold by an artist called Gallant. I've never heard of them. I just found it on some random Spotify playlist. Uh, and then my last pick is React Rally. It'll be about a month away by the time this podcast goes live. It's August 24th and 25th in Salt Lake City, a JavaScript conference uh, for React. The speaker lineup is live right now. Um, if you go to reactrally.com, you'll be able to see who's speaking. And I think it'll be super great, and you should buy a ticket and come. Those are my picks.
1: Awesome. I'll go next when Zach will have you wrap us up. So for me. my uh, first pick is going to be the... Sitcom Better Off Ted, which I absolutely loved when it was on TV, watched it religiously. Only had a single season, but it's super fun to watch. And I know I've picked it before, but I'm going to pick it again. And then this is something that has been picked before because it was in pre order but has now just released, and that is the book Armada by the same author who wrote Ready Player One. So this Armada is more, if you happen to be old enough to have seen the movie The Last Starfighter, it is somewhat similar to that storyline, at least the beginning of it is. And I just it just came out on my Kindle a couple of nights ago. I was so excited. Here about eleven PM, all of a sudden I get this notification, Armada is ready to download and read. So I've been reading it and I'm super excited to read it. I'm picking it before I know if it's great because I know it's going to be great. And if it's not, then Jameson owes everybody ten bucks. That works. <laughs> All right, uh, Zach. Why do I owe uh, so, you
2: $10? bucks? i am confused.
1: No, Because no. uh, I, I have no money to pay anybody, so this is the bet I'm making with everybody, that I'm going to be right, that the book's going to be good, and if I'm wrong, then, then you have Jameson's
2: no. Then, then you have no consequence.
1: Yes, okay. Jameson pays my debts. Yeah, I'll,
2: I'll cover you. All right.
3: <laughs> I like that deal. Um, so I have three. I, first of all, I have a book on using QuickCheck with Erlang. I was actually working on one with JavaScript,
2: but it's on indefinite
3: hold, so don't buy that. So it's not really for sale. Uh, it's called the Erlang Quick Checkbook. It goes over a lot of what we discussed using the examples of Erlang, but most of what I said will also work in other languages, so it may still be useful for you. Second of all, I'm starting with a friend of mine, my friend Heinz and I are starting a startup called Parrot, or Parrot, Universal no- Notification Interface. If you're building a SaaS-type business that needs to notify people and you're wondering how do you talk to this customer who's using JIRA, and that one is using Pivotal, and the other guy wants GitHub issues, and the other people are using Bitbucket, we provide you one API that you can talk to and just let your customers figure out how they want to get notified. So if that's interesting, it's parrot-uni for Universal Notification Interface.com. And the third pick is a novel. It's called The Famine of Men. And it's by uh, Richard H. Kesson, who's my father. But that being said, it's a really good novel. And it's about a virus that comes in and causes a the male, bo- male men to stop producing testosterone and the people who hunt it down and figure out what to do about it. A really good book, and I recommend it highly. And that's not just because it's written by my father, but it was, I really enjoyed it. So those are my three picks. So Awesome. And I really wish that virus really existed because there are certain parts of the world if we could dump it on it, would probably do a world of good, but that's probably a violation <laughs> of a bunch of UN <laughs> treaties, so just as
1: well. Um Meh. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. We've appreciated having you on. It's been a great show. Yeah, thank you. And we will see everybody next week. And thanks for tuning in and listening.
0: This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, We'll augment your team and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.